Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our September edition of the Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm very well, my friend, and it's coming up very fast to the end of the year. I can't believe we've uh, run another uh, year of journal clubs together. It's been nice. It has been very nice. And, uh, of course, I have to do a little advertisement just in case people are still wondering what they're doing on Wednesday, the 15th of November. Come along to Simulation Reconnect at Bond University, where we'll have a few of our friends and uh, colleagues talking about all things sim and, more importantly, talking to each other. And some excellent workshops the day before as well, which I have booked into. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, good. And if you are interested, you can get onto that from the Simulcast website. Or if you just Google Bond University Simulation Reconnect, that'll find it as well. All right, we've got four papers, Ben, and I think I'm going to kick off with the first one, talking about that old chestnut, the simulated patient death. All right, well, yes, this is a paper titled The Effect of Simulated Patient Death on Learners' Stress and Knowledge Retention, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trial, and that's from a group in India, Rajendran et al., and it's published in an online journal that maybe some of our listeners know about called Curious, spelled C-U-R-E-U-S, uh, in August this year. And in fact, quite a lot of medical education things I notice get published in that and a few simulation things. So uh, if people are interested, you can check it out. So the background, as they describe in the paper, uh, is that simulated patient death has been a contentious topic. And I do recall, you know, 15 years ago, us having great debates about should mannequins ever die. Uh, and then I think appropriately, we kind of left that alone and just said, well, it depends on what you're trying to achieve appropriately. Uh, but in this, they sort of go back over some of that. They give one categorization talking about expected deaths and it's kind of the focus of a sim versus an unexpected death uh, where the participants don't know that that's going to be the outcome. Uh, and then they talk about a death due to an action or inaction where it's a surprise for both the learners and facilitators, which I think <laughs> is maybe something I wouldn't ever like to have happen. But uh, anyway, that's one of the categorizations. Uh, and the other thing they have in their background discussion is uh, what are the outcomes and benefits? And they do you know, make the point this is not something that you would like to have happen often or in the real world to get your first experience. So there's a good opportunity to talk about the issues and to practice and reflect on it before you're in the real world. But there are some obvious uh, little landmines here about how people react to that in terms of their emotional state. Uh, and they appropriately identify the fact that the debrief and the construct around this is sort of a little, is very important as to how we set this up. So what did they actually do? As they said, they did a systematic review of randomized control trials, uh, and they described their process of identifying studies and using the PRISMA protocols and the sort of standard systematic review approaches. Uh, and their research question, I'm going to quote here, does the simulated patient's death compared to the simulated patient's survival negatively affect the learner's emotion and knowledge retention during a team simulation activity? Uh, so seems like a reasonable question to ask, Ben. It is. I'm, I'm not super convinced the systematic review of RCTs is the solution to it, but um, mm. I think it's a good start. I, that thought. I think it's a good start. Yes. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, so they initially found 
250 studies, but then as per their inclusion and exclusion criteria, they whittled it down to just six studies, uh, which, though, include 384 participants. Uh, most of them were United States, and in fact, most of them were uni professional, either anaesthetic registrars, trainees, or medical students. And the outcomes they chose were stress response as measured by either one of these scores, the STAI score, or heart rate or cortisol or and another emotional scale. And then some of their outcomes were related to performance, which they loosely called knowledge retention. I'm going to come back to that. So uh, what did they actually find? And I actually, to be honest, I had to go back to the initial six studies because I found it quite hard. And I don't think these six studies were very comparable to your point about was this the right method to really look at this issue? Uh, they claimed in their discussion that there was increased stress response in the mortality group versus the survival group. And they talked about some other issues related to agency. Was the learner action the cause of the death or was it inevitable? And then they said that knowledge retention, well, maybe it was better in three of them, uh, not about the same in one and worse in one. So I'm with you. I found it very hard to get any kind of aggregate outcome from these six studies because they weren't really all designed to answer that research question that they had posed. And so I, when I look back at the individual studies, there were lots of really interesting things in there in terms of just looking at how does death affect subsequent performance. And um, some of the studies brought people back to see if when the patient died, that affected how they went when they came back and brought them back for a subsequent sim session. Um one of them I thought was not that helpful because they put medical students in a really challenging scenario and then when they failed and the patient died, they all felt a little bit um, sad about that, which I think is probably fair enough. Uh, but some of the other studies were looking more at issues like independent versus supervised practice and the idea that allowing failure to play out and the patient to die might have a stronger impact than a supervisor stepping in and taking over. Um, but that was for more advanced practitioners who were probably more used to this, uh, the possibility of a death. Um, and only one of them actually specifically looked at anxiety, and that was the one that showed no difference. So I think, to me, this shows just the challenges of doing a meta-analysis and systematic review. I think here we've got apples and oranges, and that never bodes that well when you're trying to get an aggregate sort of outcome. Uh, and I think lots of these studies actually tell us more about the educational frameworks and other issues at play rather than just knowledge retention and emotional activation. So to me, they were long bows to draw. Uh, so I think, short answer, what, what what do I do with this? Uh, I probably go back to my biases that most of us have about mannequin deaths. And I think, well, be clear why you're doing it. Uh, make it real and realistic for the learner group. Um, take the opportunity to push people to their zone of proximal development. If it's realistic and not too overwhelming, then death is a perfectly a uh, possible thing to happen in a scenario. Uh, but I think it can be done safely if you think about how you prepare people for it and um, set it up within an overall construct. So, yeah, so I guess I agree with your point that I'm not sure that RCT was right, but I think it's good to keep looking at the issue and the and the uh, various things related to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a, a nice start to that conversation that we can deepen maybe with other methods or reflection but i think a bit like you i'm just pretty comfortable with this being and it depends response now um 
And I think the thing that struck me about the paper was actually the fact that um, if I took anything away from it, it was that, well, actually, this is going to impact different people different way. And I can't necessarily, in different ways, and I can't necessarily control or factor for that. So, you know, it needs to be a sensitive, carefully made decision, but that the impact of that decision will actually just play out on different people in different ways that mm. I can't control, just have to accept. Uh, and so there's a little bit of playing with fire there, but also a little bit freeing to say this is this is a uh, experience I've generated with the learners and some of their mm. emotional response I'm not actually going to be able to fully learn, fully own, and uh, it may or may not <laughs> impact their learning in different ways for different people. Yeah, and I think this is harder for that group of things where death is potentially an outcome depending on what the learners do. And that's almost a double or nothing. Like it's great if it truly is a, I learned from my failures uh, about how I could do better next time. And that had a strong signal for me, but it wasn't overwhelming versus I know you do some work on uh, pediatric death where that's the whole point of the scenario is about what's the process of doing that. And it sounds to me like you do that very sensitively and well done, but it's probably very clear to everyone what it is you're doing. And so to some respects, probably less uh psychologically on so yeah i mean they, they start out dead so there is there is yeah. no they have no role yeah. or influence on that it's how do you how do you mm. care for them well afterwards um mm. i would be interested to know what vicky leblanc thinks maybe we'll have to ask her <laughs> simulation reconnect um i think we will. but it does make me remember you know um there was a great revisionist history uh, uh episode about casuistry and I think it's the Mennonites, like when you come a, a, a up to a complex problem that doesn't have a clear right or wrong, then one way of approaching it is sort of exploring extreme cases on either end and then gradually working out, well, where is our line and where is the difference and what is the difference that makes this one okay and this one not? And I think, um, you know, that thing that you highlight that uh, death as punishment for learner mistake is, you know, for me, clearly wrong. Uh, but death as natural impact of decisions that are being made uh, isn't clearly wrong. And so trying to mm. tease that out and work out where we sit when we're facilitating something would be interesting. Yes. Mm. But, uh, yes, let's ask uh, Vicky mm. because I think the the connection between emotion and learning was a, something that came up here, but I don't think they really explored it to the depth that I know she loves to talk about it. Yeah. In. All right, you're next. All righty, I am. So I've got two papers to talk about. Uh, both of which I thought were super interesting in different ways. So the first one is entitled Relinquishing Control. Supervisor co-regulation may disrupt student self-regulated learning during simulation-based training. It's from a journal called Advances in Health Sciences Education in May 2023 uh, by Gianni R. Lorello. So, look, this paper is a mixed-method, two-arm, prospective, non-inferiority trial with some quantitative and qualitative components. And it looks into something that I thought was quite nuanced about how we self-regulate learning. And there's a lot of chat, isn't there, about the importance of self-regulated learning and developing autonomy as you become a student and driving uh, your own ability to uh, to learn and then probably, to be quite honest, a lot of facilitator frustration at whether that exists totally. or whether there is. I think Jesse called it once um, externally motivated self-regulated learning is probably the <laughs> reality. Um, yep. 
And this paper introduces a couple of key concepts that I thought were great. So the first is, you know, this definition of self-regulated learning, which they describe as where learners focus their attention and resources on achieving their learning goals through control of their emotional, cognitive, metacognitive, and behavioral strategies. Which essentially to me is they do all of the stuff that will mean that they can learn on their own. And then co-regulated learning, which I hadn't actually heard or thought of before. So that is um, where learners still have their own strategies, but we acknowledge that actually while some of that is driven by self, there's also other factors like course structure, your relationship with your supervisor and your interactions with your colleagues uh, and tools that have been built into the learning setting. I guess I've heard of co-regulation more when we think about emotional co-regulation with in pediatrics, for example, where uh, a kid is learning how to negotiate challenging emotion and learns their cues or responds to cues from their parents' emotions about how they're responding to something and then begins to develop their own skills in that. So I think my take home from that definition was that just that it highlights that self-regulated learners are actually mostly in social rather than individual situations. And so there may be differences between outcomes or experiences from an individual learner who is genuinely just learning on their own to one who's working within a social or group setting. So this paper goes out to explore the nuance between those two kind of overlapping and interrelated concepts. Uh, and they chose to explore the impact of the presence of instructor supervision on learners, which I think is a very valid question given how much we're uh, looking into VR formats and large scalable educational interventions now. So they recruited um, nature's guinea pigs, the med students who were learning to diagnose cardiac murmurs using a simulator and aimed to compare any difference in their diagnostic accuracy post-test. So they did an immediate post-test, then they did a two-week delayed retention test, and then they did uh, something that was a little bit complicated, but a preparation for future learning assessment, which is where they looked at whether the students adapted the teaching or the thinking strategy that they learned from the previous session and whether they could apply it to this new set of murmurs that they were listening to or whether they changed their strategy. And they then did some follow-up interviews as well about how the presence or absence of a supervisor impacted their learning strategies. So this was a non-inferiority trial, which I thought was a fair choice, where they're aiming to say, you know, prove that self-regulated learning wasn't inferior to co-regulated learning. And I think, you know, if you're a if you're a um, university decision maker, then that's actually a pretty reasonable question for us to be thinking about because it's a significant investment in getting supervisors, and they're quite hard to come by. And in this particular instance, they wanted to see whether having no supervisor is not inferior. So essentially, they took 32 students, randomized them to supervised or unsupervised learning with a simulator. Uh, those who were unsupervised got a clear and well-reviewed instructional video, and uh, those who had a supervisor had uh, support and feedback throughout. They ran them through a practice session and then did that immediate post-test and, and the follow-up tests I mentioned. So what did they find? Well, the supervised students actually really liked having a supervisor to bounce ideas off with uh, and in the initial test, they were much more likely to choose and use the strategies that they had been taught by the supervisor to diagnose the murmurs that they were hearing. 
But what was actually really interesting was in the follow-up test two weeks later, actually, they didn't really remember that framework very well, and they couldn't describe their thought process or their strategy. They were describing that they just they identified the murmur more intuitively. So it seemed like they came to diagnose those without as much of a strategy as we would have thought, given they're in the supervised group. And the supervised students really did enjoy reflecting on their teaching in the second session, um, but they actually also really enjoyed that chance to then start having to contextualize and own their thought processes and develop some autonomy over their learning. Uh, but the unsupervised ones had a pretty good time too. So they enjoyed that sense of self-discovery initially and, and own that autonomy. So looking at the quantitative data, I've got to confess, I found these findings a bit confusing. Uh, that Basically, they argue that immediately post-test and at the retention test, actually the self-regulated group was non-inferior. So you could make the argument that, that it's a perfectly reasonable uh, choice to minimize your faculty. But they were inconclusive in the preparation for future learning tests. And I, I genuinely wasn't sure what that meant. I don't know if you came to any conclusions there, Vic. Yes, I guess my cynical one would be that then they didn't learn the way that they would have liked to, to have learned. So that made it inconclusive. Whereas I think we don't necessarily, well, we know that in terms of the outcomes in listening to heart murmurs, it doesn't make any difference. But maybe having a framework makes a difference for something else. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and uh, just to describe that for the listener as well, you know, they, they were initially taught a particular strategy and pattern. So, you know, either thinking about the location of where they were hearing the sound or the, the, um, position of the sound within the heartbeat cycle, uh, and different types of strategies you could have. And essentially immediately after the instructor session, uh, those guys all choose the same one that they'd been instructed to. And then it's quite dramatic looking at the table that two weeks later, it is a complete hodgepodge of random strategy choices uh, and so it was quite striking when if, if you were the supervisor it's a little bit confronting in terms of your level of impact on the learner at a very short uh, follow-up time so look what does this all mean for the coalface educator I'm, I'm not quite sure i'd certainly argue that there is justifiable from this one paper to start thinking about the impact of and the value for money of of having those facilitators there even though they're clearly appreciated um I would argue there's some nice stuff about the relatively transient interactions that we actually have in healthcare clinical education. So the paper really nicely highlighted that one of the drawbacks of this type of teaching is that it's actually a very short, sharp relationship and that maybe if you do want truly co-regulated learning, you actually need a more longitudinal nurturing relationship rather than just a brief interaction. And a lot of what we do in those clinical years in med school definitely very much is meet this person, have a five-minute presumed transfer of knowledge and then move on to the next rotation or the next term. Um, mm. So those were kind of my big take-homes. And I think really, you know, if we are providing teaching, then we need to be mindful in providing students with the opportunity to own that learning and to develop autonomy, a bit like when you're raising a kid, right? If we keep just telling them what's right, then... They don't know how to negotiate that later on themselves when they come to a new problem. The context probably matters, doesn't it? I mean, cardiac murmurs, speaking of old chestnuts, uh, it, like this is the classic pattern recognition, and it's particularly pattern recognition when you're doing it on a simulator that has a chest that always lives the same to listen to and it's not 
influenced by things like body habitus and comorbidities and all those other things. It's also something which I'm sure it's a nice thing to test, but I think we know that the relevance to clinical practice is ever decreasing. Um, and this probably is the kind of skill that your stethoscope will be able to interpret for you and probably already can, uh, quite aside from just getting the echo. So I think what the skill is probably matters as well. Um, that doesn't detract from the work. They did it beautifully, obviously, this very highly credentialed crowd. I would not dare to criticize their methods. Mm. Uh, I think I would have really liked to have seen a peer co-regulated learning group. That would have been interesting because I think um, the reason I was interested in this paper is because a colleague of mine, Tash Yates, is doing a PhD on co-regulated learning and she's really been looking at peer co-regulated learning and simulation. So I think it'd be quite useful if a couple of them were learning together as opposed to just individuals or with a supervisor because I feel like supervisor co-regulated learning is one subset. Uh, and maybe with peers. Um, but I think it also just shows the primacy of uh, people's figuring things out for themselves versus getting instruction. And that probably is a lesson that's got really broad uh, notions. If you do something and it's successful for you, it's probably pretty sticky as opposed to someone telling you something and you thinking, well, it's probably a good idea because this important person told me. So, yeah, I thought it was uh, very interesting and uh, probably from, again, methodologic point of view, no expert, but I think this is a truly mixed methods thing too, where you see the quantitative data triangulated uh, with that qualitative inquiry data and uh, it puts together a really helpful picture, I think, of what's actually going on with the learning. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it's uh, nicely done. Mm. Uh, just by the way, that first author, Lorello, mm. um, has a article that I use a lot in examples about mental rehearsal. So all these clever Canadians keep on doing clever things. Ah, excellent. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on to a slightly different focus now, a very systemic one. So we're going to look at a paper by Marlena Smith-Milburn et al. in Health Environments Research and Design Journal. I think that's the first time we've quoted that particular journal, but um, a paper entitled Hazard Assessment and Remediation Tool for Simulation-Based Healthcare Facility Design Testing. Uh, and I really love this paper. So it's a nice paper that provides an overview of the development of a reporting tool for healthcare facilities who are undergoing primarily like pre-design or pre-construction environmental testing of their physical environments which we're certainly starting to do a lot more of within the sim community as well. So the paper synthesizes really nicely that this is becoming an increasingly popular space for sim teams to work in, but actually there's a high level of variability in our approach and the way we categorize, name, and problem solve the issues that we see. They describe two main options or streams. So one in which teams themselves participate in simulations and then are debriefed and discuss the latent safety threats that are seen by facilitators and staff, and the alternative where you might video the simulations and then employ human factors experts to identify latent safety threats and offer opportunities for improvement. And Simulcast listeners may recall that we looked at uh, Andrew Petrosoniak's paper on that in 2021, where they identified that actually healthcare staff aren't, we're not that great at picking up latent safety threats. And it was a really good eye-opening paper, which is uh, referenced in this one. 
So the authors here argue that you know both of those methods are vulnerable to different challenges. Uh, human factors experts might actually be unavailable or uh, an impossible cost for simulation teams. So certainly I think they're well aware that around the world people are starting to do this and it may well be a couple of uh, simulation enthusiasts rather than human factors experts that have been brought on. Uh, and similarly, you know, hospital teams actually come with their own biases as well. So they describe the development of the tool, which was certainly very thorough, to identify um, a number of things. So they wanted to aid the identification of workplace hazards. They wanted to be able to measure or describe the level of impact or severity of those threats as well as to collect potential solutions or workarounds. So the project this was based around sounds really cool. So the team were testing the designs for a new clinical tower in a children's hospital for a proposed PICU and NICU, which involved full-scale mock-ups of patient rooms. And the design of the tool is well-described with a very thorough four-phase iterative design process. And it involved a lot of stuff, Vic, I don't have to say. So there was a thematic analysis of some initial simulations with full physical mock-ups of the rooms, a draft of hazard categories from that, video reviews and then testing of the categories, followed by creation and iteration of operational de definitions and then development and refinement of coding process processes followed actually by coding trials to see whether there was inter-rater reliability. So an, an impressive amount of work from a highly experienced team. I know, figure one takes up an entire page. Yeah, <laughs> not unreasonably. It <laughs> yeah, it's exhaustive. Yeah. Uh, so I do love in the paper that they highlight that the experts involved in those iterative cycles actually included clinical experts as well as engineers and environmental health and hygiene experts and process improvement experts. So they were getting a nice range of expertise there. And they also paired within subgroups of coding clinical and non-clinical coders together so that they could share their context during coding. Uh, which I thought they nicely described why they did that. So in the end, they've got this tool, which has six primary hazard categories, which were like a slip, fall, injury risk, an obstructed patient access, obstructed pathway, infection risk, and poor visibility. And they then tested that tool for inter-rater reliability, both between clinicians and non-clinical experts. And then they also specifically tested between clinical experts and other clinicians because they wanted to acknowledge that if they're developing a tool for widespread use, then it may well just be clinicians who are using it and they wanted to get it as uh, reliable as possible. Because, you know, they knew that there would be some hospitals where it was the only resource. And the inter-rater reliability they got on video review was, uh, they describe as, uh, as good to excellent. So there are some fair acknowledgements of the limitation of the tool in the discussion and uh, particularly regarding its applicability to other regions of the hospital. And that's, I think, the thing that standard stood out for me, even within the categories, the hazard categories that there was, you know, obviously when you're in a, you know, you're testing a pre-rollout clinical space, then we are more likely to pick up those issues with the environment that have been identified. Um, I do worry a little that they weren't able to incorporate ergonomics into it as deeply as I'd expected given the level of impact on our work sometimes with that. But overall, it's just a really super impressive piece of work, Vic. Any thoughts? Oh, totally. Uh, impressive group of work. And again, uh, these are people that know what they're doing at Boston Children's Hospital and uh, are very 
one of their pillars in their sim program is about doing this kind of work. Uh, like you, there's nothing but admiration for the exhaustive process by which they established and then validated this tool. Uh, but you, th- you would think if you're going to all that work to do that, it better be really blo- broadly applicable across many different contexts. And so I guess it'll take someone else validating in a different context. But I guess I had a couple of really fundamental questions that reflect my ignorance of this kind of area. Um, and the first is, do we think that participant debriefing is a good enough source to establish these categories? And I don't think that's actually what they did. I think because they had experts in other things, they did incorporate some of their knowledge inductively from what's actually important. Uh, and I guess secondly, uh, is it about being right and having integrated reliability? What if just one person says something that's out of the blue but it's really important? That may well be just as important as having a tool that measures what most people would say and comparing it to each other or having reproducibility rather. Uh, so I, I guess I had a couple of just sort of fundamental questions about that. And one of the things that they talked about this FMEA, which has come up quite a lot, the failure modes effect analysis, uh, which talks a lot about not just what are the risks, but how important and likely are they, like any kind of risk matrix. And I didn't quite see it, but I didn't quite get the idea that Hart had those dimensions. It was more a kind of linear, here's the thing. So it, I'm sure would help them identify their hazard reductions and I think they will have have some very well very well tested building when they open it but I think if we're trying to think is this something then we could take to your hospital or mine uh, I don't know yeah I think that's fair I, I think um you know it strikes me as a challenge though isn't it because certainly mm-hmm. I have a personal bias towards really valuing participant feedback and experience on uncovering things we hadn't thought about in that kind of systems testing, but that's in strong contrast with the evidence from um, Petrosaniac's work that said, actually, (laughs) you're not nearly as good as you think you are and everyone wants to talk about communication, but they actually don't recognize that that isn't the place to put that electrical plug right now. Um, (laughs) So I thought that this was a, a nice way to acknowledge that tension and try and find another solution. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, anyway, I think uh, it'd be good to see if some others get to test out the same tool. Mm, absolutely. Great. Well, well done, and thank you. Yes. Over to you. Right, and our last paper has very little to do with simulation, and I'll, I'll own that, um, but it's got something to do with academic writing. So this is a paper that is titled Writing with Chat GPT. An Illustration of Its Capacity, Limitations and Implications for Academic Writers by none other than Lorelei Lingard, uh, writing in Perspectives in Medical Education in one of her Writer's Craft series. So why are we doing this, given that it's not a SIM article? Well, I think Simulcast listeners, some of them are academic writers and quite a few of them are academic readers. Uh, And so I think the question here is, are we going to have our journal articles all written by ChatGPT? And would that be a good thing for readers or for writers? So that's probably the departure point for why it's made it into the Simulcast Journal Club. Uh, if you don't know who Lorelai Lingard is, she works at Western University in Canada. 
She is works mainly there now on medical education research, but her background is a PhD in English and she's a rhetorician. And so she runs these writer's studio courses, one of which I have done, gives a lot of talks and does a lot of upskilling for the academic community in writing better. And as a brief advertisement, the next Bond event is the Writers' Festival come 18th of March, 2024. Look out for that one where Lorelei will be talking and running her own little writer's studio. Anyway, she's clearly had a little itch scratched by what is going to be the role of chat GPT and has written a marvelous article that basically retells the story of a conversation that she had with chat GPT as she asked it to write some stuff to help her write. This is really an advertisement for saying, just read this nice little three page, four page article. Um, and one thing here, it was helpful to me because I'm no expert. What even is ChatGPT really? It's an artificial intelligence large language model, and I'm going to quote here, trained on massive amounts of data, allowing to learn language patterns and association, which it uses to generate human-like conversation text when prompted. And then another important quote, so it generates responses that are grammatically correct and semantically meaningful, but they're not always accurate. So as uh, she points out, they're not a search engine. They're just rather good at predicting what the next word will be in a sentence. And I think uh, that's or a sequence. That's uh, That was, for me, really helpful to think about why am I not just Googling things? Why am I asking chat GPT? And you'll get quite different things. So what did she do? As I said, she mapped out this conversation she'd had with ChatGPT and she asked it uh, certain questions, things like, tell me about what is voice in academic writing, and that's something she's really interested in. Uh, Here's my abstract. Can you reduce the length of it? Uh, What do you know about my writer's craft series? Uh, And she asked it to generate some counter-arguments to a piece of writing that she'd written, and she asked it to do some summarizing and editing text, amongst other things. And... uh, and then she gave what had been the responses from ChatGPT to a lot of these questions that she did. And uh, it was hard to capture her clever presentation, but uh, there were very rapid responses. Uh, the, quite a lot of them were quite inaccurate and, in fact, quite hallucinating, making up books she'd never written. Uh, and wasn't very good at cutting down the abstract to 300 words. Uh, but there are a few nice little things here. It could shift the... Um, uh, tone and move from stuffy academic to, as she described it, effusive adolescent. Uh, and what she did with each response was show the cautions and some insights into this is what you get from ChatGPT and this is what you can do. And then as it sort of summarizes it, um, I think that this is a great tool if you understand the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and as she said, it's better at structure than content. Um, it's pretty good at brainstorming and coming up with ideas. And the skill, it seems, as she illustrates, is through this incremental prompting so that then you can get something that's useful to you. And getting good at that incremental prompting is a key to success. So really, my takeaway here is read the article because it's, I think, got a lot of clarity for how I can see the way forward for using chat GPT or similar large language models in helping us to write and for a variety of contexts but including academic writing are you inspired ben uh well i was inspired by lorelei's writing um i think i'm reaching my curmudgeon phase when it <laughs> 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 developmental it's appropriate she had a little bit of that come out too <laughs> which was which i loved uh it was refreshing yeah yeah uh it was so refreshingly honest you know just that the level of anger with it when it just made up a series of books that she'd never written, for example. (laughs) 
Uh, and, and, <laughs> Some of which seemed like she would be quite happy to. Yeah, yeah. She hadn't. <laughs> um, but I love that, you know, the method that she used to actually both highlight its strengths and interrogate its weaknesses and make that really, really clear. And I found it very confronting in terms of the level of inaccuracy that she was able to very quickly demonstrate. And I think, you know, I just remain very cautious about using it as a tool in the basis that I worry about creativity if a source of creativity is something that's inherently derivative from what exists previously. But um, I thought that she had a nice pragmatic approach to the things that could be useful and highlighting that those things are things that can increase our efficiency without impacting our own voice, hopefully. Yes. Hmm. I'm still left wondering how long it took her to write the paragraphs that she wrote because they're so good. Uh, and in particular, I'll just highlight one <laughs> because it really does. You, you get this uh, roller coaster of emotions that she's gone through as she's done this from being impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I know, from being impressed to being frustrated yeah. to being curmudgeonly. And at the end, she said, I know it isn't sentient and doesn't have motivations or emotions, but I can't help but think in some of our exchanges that it was being sullen, intractable, and even deliberately insincere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I felt that so strongly looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Um, All right, Ben, well, there are our uh, simulcast articles for September 2023. You've got a uh, good month up ahead, I presume. I do, yeah, absolutely. Got some big trips. It's going to be nice. Got school holidays. Going to hang out with the fam. It's going to be excellent. Hmm. Very good. Well, uh, simulcast listeners, of course, will put the links to these articles in the show notes. Uh, and we better get the revisionist history uh, episode that you talked about as well. We better put that in there. Oh, yeah, that's so, a good one. Yeah. That's a good one, mm. yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Ben. And for Simulcast listeners, this is Vic and Ben signing off for Simulcast. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Very